Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Greetings, everybody, and welcome back. Today, we're going to talk about the rapture. Now, I got a special request a while back to do an episode on the rapture, and it's taken me a while to get to it because I've been busy with some other projects, but I wanted to get to that and kind of give a general overview of the rapture, and hopefully that'll be helpful. And if there's any feedback on this episode, because I won't be able to get into every single detail, obviously, but I would love to hear from you. And if there's anything specific to talk about with regard to the rapture, we can always do a follow-up episode at a later time. Now, when people think about the rapture, a lot of times there's some skepticism involved with that, and people will say, hey, there's no clear Bible verse that teaches the rapture, so why would anyone ever believe that? Now, just to be clear, that's actually not appropriate thinking. There are actually no Bible verses that teach the Trinity either, as far as a complete doctrine. However, when we think about the Trinity, that's an orthodox belief for Christianity, and it has been for thousands of years. And the reason why is because we interpret passages and we collate them together, we fit them together, and ensure that they are non-contradictory. And that's the key to formulating doctrine. Whenever you're formulating a doctrine, you exegete the primary passages, and then you compare and contrast the theological ramifications of those passages into a consistency with other teachings in Scripture. So just because there's not one verse that teaches the rapture per se, and I'll clarify what I mean by that um, in a second, that doesn't actually mean that there's no doctrine inherent or that there's an impossibility of having the rapture being taught through scripture. Doctrines are inherently to be compared and contrasted with scripture and taken out of the whole of scripture. They're, they're not to be contradictory or anything like that. So what we're going to do today, essentially, is we're going to talk more about when the rapture takes place and not if there's a rapture. And the reason why I phrase it like that is because technically everyone believes in the rapture. You say, what? They do? Yeah, they do, because the Bible very clearly teaches that Jesus comes back and he snatches up those who are waiting for him. And that clearly comes from, from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following. There's no other way to interpret that passage except by calling it a rapture of sorts. In fact, we get that word rapture from the Latin translation of that passage to snatch up. And so everyone believes in a rapture, but the real issue is when does that take place? For many people, that rapture event is simply equated with the second coming of Christ, meaning that when Jesus comes back to judge the world and to uh, fight the final victory over his foes, that is the same time that the believers are caught up to be with him. And we'll talk more about that uh, in a little bit. However, I, I think for the streamlining of this episode, I, I need to make a major assumption, which will alienate 
a large portion of uh, Christianity, at least American Christianity, as it were. And that's to assume that there's going to be a 1000 year reign of Christ, to assume that there's going to be a millennial reign. And my amillennial and postmillennial brothers would say, oh, that's a terrible assumption. You know, that's just ridiculous. Now, we could do a separate episode, and we will one day, about why there's a millennium. It, suffice it to say at this point that Scripture is very clear that there is a future kingdom promised to Israel, and we get the timing of that from Revelation. And Revelation 20 is very clear that that's going to take place over a thousand years. So that's uh, a literal interpretation of both Old and New Testaments, an expectation for a literal kingdom, and Revelation 20 gives us the timing of that and how that's going to take place. So we're assuming that that's going to take place for this episode so we can talk about the timing of the rapture. However, I acknowledge that those who hold to an amillennial or postmillennial position would not be comfortable with saying that there's going to be a 1,000-year reign of Christ. However, we're making that assumption for this episode. We can deal with that, uh, proving that at a different point. Now, in light of that assumption, there are essentially five views. Two are basically sub-views of, of others. So there's three main views, but we'll, we'll list five of when the rapture is going to take place. So the first one, which I'm going to argue for and give a, a demonstration of the evidence for why I think it makes, makes most sense, would be called pre-tribulationalism. So what pre-tribulationalism holds to is that there's going to be a seven-year tribulation before the millennial reign of Christ, and the church, the believers, are raptured up, uh, taken to be with Jesus before that seven-year time of judgment takes place. That's called pre-tribulationalism. There's the second view, which is known as mid-tribulationalism, which kind of self-evidently believes that instead of being raptured at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, the church is raptured in the middle. And a lot of times what the proponents will argue is that they are raptured, raptured in the middle before the, the, real, uh, the real sticky stuff, the real wrath begins to be poured out on the world. And so they're saved from the wrath as it were for that. Um, we're not going to talk as much about mid-tribulationalism because I don't think the arguments uh, are very strong as a whole, but we will mention some areas of conflict and why that's probably not the best view. Now, kind of a subset of mid-tribulationalism, but it's listed as its own view by, by others, would be a view known as pre-wrath rapture. And that timing can be different. Uh, it could be three quarters of the way through the tribulation period. It could be halfway through whatever. The, the main idea is that the church is raptured pre-wrath, wherever the main wrath might come in at that point. So that's a subset view. Uh, it's it's very minor, not, not as many would hold to that. So the third main view would be post-tribulational rapture, post-tribulationalism. And what that view teaches is that the rapture and the second coming are essentially the, the same event, which will occur at the end of the tribulation period. In this sense, you have a lot of overlap with how amillennial or postmillennial interpreters would interpret the passages. They would see the rapture passages and the second coming passages as being essentially equal. 
And the difference would be that post-tribulationalists would hold to a literal 1,000-year reign. They would usually, I should say, would hold to a literal 1,000-year reign, and they would hold to a seven-year tribulation. So this is actually a very common view. It's probably the the post-tribulationalism and pre-tribulationalism are the most common views with regard to the rapture. Now, there is also a kind of a separate view, which we could identify as the partial rapture view, which teaches that only spiritual or mature Christians are brought up to be with the Lord and taken in rapture. And that timing could be different. Uh, I think maybe the most popular view of that would be at the at various intervals that could take place. Uh, again, not a very popular view, but it does show up. Every once in a while, in fact, uh, my favorite references to being uh, to having a partial rapture are whenever I can't find somebody, and so I just attribute it to a partial rapture. You know, I can't find Bill, so it must have been a partial rapture, and he's gone. So, if it's a doctrine of convenience, I'm all for it. So, anyway, those are the main views, and. As we think through these, I just want to go back and, and set our minds as to the importance of, of addressing this methodologically. The important thing with regard to methodology is we want to be consistent and we want to formulate a doctrine in the appropriate way. So whenever you're formulating a doctrine, the thing that you have to do is compare the pertinent passages first, exegete them, look at them, compare and contrast them, and understand them. Then, after that pertinent uh, exegesis of those passages, then you compare the ramifications of that view and what what the theology, the, the outworking of that theology looks like. That's the way you formulate your doctrine. You compare it, you double-check it, etc. So, obviously, we can't go into exhaustive detail on certain passages. I'm definitely open to addressing the details of certain passages in future episodes. However, for this episode, in order to be most helpful, I just want to kind of give an overview. And so I'm going to list the second coming passages and the rapture passages, how they're laid out. And you can do your own study on that. And I want to just kind of give some brief general differences in how those those lay out. So essentially, as a pre-tribulationalist, what I'm trying to look for is whether or not the passages that deal with the rapture and the passages that deal with the second coming are different. Do they look the same or are they different enough to at least provide a possibility, if not a probability, that they're talking about two different comings of Jesus? That's what we're going for. So the first thing to to keep in mind as far as the passages is the, the passages dealing with the rapture are John 14, 1 to 3, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 58, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Those are the three central passages which are dealing with the rapture. Now, the other passages that are dealing specifically with the second coming would be Zechariah 14, Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, Mark 13, 24 through 27, Luke 21, 25 through 27, Revelation 19, and moving into Revelation 20 as well. So if we compare these texts, we want to see, are they speaking of the same event? Now, when we do that, the first thing that we realize is that 
The second coming is preceded by signs in those passages that deal with the second coming, but the passages that talk about the rapture are presented in with no signs preceding it, but as an imminence. In other words, uh, for 1 Thessalonians 4, we have an expectation of Jesus coming, but there's no uh, preview or sign ahead of the fact that Jesus is coming, which you would expect uh, if you were looking for that warning signal as such. So there's no signs preceding it in the rapture passages. However, there are a lot of signs uh, explained by Christ himself in Matthew 24 that would precede the second coming. So the point seems to be that uh, when we think about these things, the believer is to look for the Lord, not for a sign. And yet there's also passages that are very clear that there's going to be certain signs that precede the coming of the Lord. So how do we harmonize those? except for supposing that there are there seems to be two different comings of Christ. The other thing, the second thing I should say, is that the rapture is presented as a coming blessing, while the second coming is presented as a coming judgment. And again, when we think about 1 Thessalonians 4, that's probably the main rapture passage as far as people labeling the passages. What the context of 1 Thessalonians 4 is a comfort to the believers in Thessalonica, reminding and encouraging them that Jesus is going to come and that's going to be resulting in the resurrection of their dead friends who have trusted in Christ and their own reuniting with the Lord Jesus. And so that's a tremendous encouragement. But in these other passages of the second coming, the context is one of war and judgment. And so, again, that's not definitive. They could still hypothetically be referring to the same instance. However, it's starting to show as we compare these passages that there are some significant differences. And are those differences enough to make us think that there might be two comings uh, being spoken of? The third thing uh, to observe about comparing these passages is that the second coming passages are in the context of setting up the kingdom, but the rapture passages don't make any mention of the kingdom. And that's a little odd because you would expect, especially in light of the previous point, that in order to comfort believers and to give them encouragement, there should be mention of the kingdom. And yet you don't find that. You you see an emphasis fa found on the unification of believers with their Savior, Jesus Christ. However, there's no mention of the kingdom. However, in the second coming passages, we see that the Lord comes, he engages in a final warfare, and then a kingdom is instituted. And so there seems to be a different emphasis uh, one that's especially driven by the establishment of the kingdom in the second coming. And that's worth noting. Uh, fourthly, we have glorified bodies being stressed in the rapture passages. I mean, this is very clear in 1 Thessalonians 4 as well as 1 Corinthians 15, that those who are raptured are gathered to the Lord and will be glorified. They're given a new body, a glorified body. Now, on the other hand, when we look through the second coming passages, there's no mention of anyone receiving a glorified body. And again, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that they can't be referring to the same event, but you would expect uh, some overlap in some of those passages. However, you don't, you don't see that. In fact, this becomes a theological problem, which I'll mention just briefly now, but we'll, we'll deal with a little later. 
the question is during the 1000 year reign of Christ, there are, there's marriage and the giving birth of children. And so can glorified bodies do that? No. So you have to have natural bodies somehow involved in the kingdom. And how do we get those bodies there? We'll talk about that in, in a little bit. Next, we have in the second coming passages, no mention of meeting in the air. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4, we have in verse 16, the Lord himself descends from heaven and the dead in Christ rise. And then verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, when you couple that with John 14, John 14 talks about how uh, Jesus goes to prepare a place so that they may be with him. Now, the second coming passages talk about Jesus coming to be with or to reign over the earth. So in other words, he comes down and makes his abode at uh, at Jerusalem on the planet earth. Now, these rapture passages seem to paint the picture that believers are caught up to, to abide with Jesus. Now, if Jesus is just coming down to earth, why do we go meet him in the air and then we just finish the journey back down to earth? That I mean, that might be possible, but it doesn't really seem to match with the the meaning of these rapture passages. The The idea of believers going to be with the Lord seems to be the present emphasis and comfort involved with that. And yet in the second coming passages, uh, it doesn't talk about meeting Jesus in the air at all. It just says that Jesus is going to come down and gather his elect, etc., And so there seems to be some distinctions there as well. Now, another big difference in the passages would be a difference in the timing of resurrections. And I think this is really important. In 1 Thessalonians 4, you have the resurrection, which actually precedes believers meeting Jesus in the air. It says, uh, the dead will rise first, then we who are alive will who are left will be caught up together we'll meet him in the clouds in the air now that seems to make sense however when we compare that understanding with revelation 19 and 20 there seems to be a different order christ descends to earth engages in a final battle against his enemies he casts the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire he binds satan and then in Revelation 20, we have the resurrection of the saints. So that seems rather odd. It seems a, a different resurrection because you have you have a different timing. If the resurrection is going to take place before Christ even comes to, to earth in 1 Thessalonians 4, but in Revelation 20, you have the resurrection taking place after the Christ has come to earth and after there's been a major battle. So there seems to be a major incongruity with those resurrection, the timing of that, if they are referring to the same resurrection. And of course, as a pre-tribulationist, I would say that they're not referring to the same resurrection and that those would be different resurrections. In fact, as a pre-tribulationist, I would hold to multiple resurrections. You have uh, you have Christ being the first fruits, those who are raptured or during the rapture period, that would be uh, a, sep- 
a separate and distinct resurrection. You have the first resurrection uh, in Revelation 20. And then after the 1000 year reign of Christ, you have another resurrection of those who are non-believers unto judgment. So you ha- have four distinct resurrections, including Christ as the first fruits that are specifically mentioned in scripture. And so that's an important understanding as you fit those things together. There's, you, we can't just say that everyone's resurrected at the same time because that's very clearly not what scripture paints. You also have another difference painted between the passages in the, the destiny at the time of comings. So what I mean by that is that there's an inconsistency in the destination of those who are raptured. So, for example, in, in if I'm a post-tribulationalist and I'm looking at the events surrounding the second coming, the church is caught up to meet the Lord in the air and will immediately come down. We talked about that previously. In the rapture, the Lord is going to have his saints meet him in the air, but in the second coming, he's going to come down and everyone's going to converge where he is. And in Revelation 19 and 20, you have a major battle uh, being fought there in that convergence as well. So we've talked a little bit about that as well. The other difference that you have, and I have about three more here, is that you have a difference in the role of angels. So in the second coming passages, angels are the ones who go out and gather the elect in Matthew 24, 31. However, in the rapture passages, uh, specifically John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4, you have Jesus as the direct agent uh, of being uh, the one who gathers his people. Now, I'm not saying that those would have to be mutually exclusive. I mean, the Lord could use angels to, to be his means of doing that, but the passages are very specific in that difference. Additionally, uh, you have scripture seeming to speak of the rapture as a mystery. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54, Paul talks about a mystery uh, being the rapture, which means that it was a truth not revealed until it was disclosed by the apostles. And you can cross-reference Colossians 1, 26 to think about mystery. So in that sense, the rapture would seem to be new revelation, making it a separate event. However, the second coming was very clearly predicted in Zechariah as far as being coming in judgment, ruling over the world. So that would, that wouldn't necessarily be a mystery per se. And so if, if Paul's describing this, this rapture as a mystery, you would expect that part of it to have not been revealed before, which is what pre-tribulationalists would claim. And just for reference, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, where where we get that, Paul starts out saying, behold, I tell you a mystery. So there he's claiming that he's he's revealing something that has not uh, been revealed for, something that was hidden and now has been revealed. So there's this mysterious nature of the rapture, which is being progressively revealed now in the New Testament. Now, one of the other things which we can conclude with as far as the this distinction is just the simple fact that there's no mention of the church in Revelation 4 through 18. So if Revelation 4 through 18 is a exegesis of Daniel's 70th week of the tribulation period, if the church is there, you would expect there to be some mention of the church. In fact, Revelation is not shy in making reference to the church. In the first three chapters, uh, the reference to the church is 
is all throughout those chapters. However, in chapters 4 through 18, you have no mention of the church. And so that is rather remarkable and completely uh, surprising if that's what John does, is he just shifts away from any discussion of the church whatsoever. So when we think about these things, I think the key here as far as what we're observing and what we're thinking about through these is that there are enough incongruities between these second coming passages and the rapture passages to at least mark out the fact that it's possible that there are two comings of Jesus, if not likely. And that that's really all, you know, admittedly, we need to say that there is possibility. We could be wrong on this, surely, uh, because we're, we're comparing and contrasting passages. We're doing the best we can. So I think the best that we can do is to say that uh, we are we are in the realm of possibility. In other words, if the, the doctrine of rapture is not heretical when we compare the passages, it makes sense hermeneutically how we're getting there because we're trying to pay attention to the details of the passages. And when we compare them, we see these incongruities and we say, hey, you know what? There's got to be an explanation for this. And it seems that this explanation that Jesus comes at one point and comes back again would be the best understanding of that. Now, there are other reasons to hold to this as well, and that's uh, in line with the second part of formulating your your theology and your doctrine, and that's to understand the ramifications of your theology. So in, in line of theological considerations, I think that we would be benefited by understanding what the ramifications of taking certain tribulational views, rapture views in light of that. And I think pre-tribulationalism as a whole best explains one of the most difficult issues, which is the presence of non-glorified saints who will enter the millennial kingdom. So what I mean by that is that the Bible indicates that living believers or living unbelievers will be removed from the earth and judged at the end of the tribulation. We see that in the sheep and the goats judgment, Matthew 25, etc. So the Bible teaches additionally, though, not just that unbelievers will be removed, but that the children will also be born in the millennium and that people will be capable of sin. You just cross-reference Isaiah 65, 20 and Revelation 27 through 10. So how does this work? Whatever view we take, we need to be consistent and have a a possible solution to this. So in the pre-tribulational view, this is actually the most straightforward and, and easy easiest understanding of this. Uh, what you have for the pre-tribulational rapture view is that people after the rapture, all the saved uh, saints are gone, right? But during the tribulation period... You have the witnesses proclaiming Jesus and and his testimony and his glory. And you have people being saved throughout the tribulation then who are able to enter the millennial kingdom in their non-glorified bodies. So uh, John Feinberg says this in one of his uh, articles, according to pre-tribulationalism, after the rapture, the tribulation begins, the gospel is preached throughout the tribulation and there are some who believe. Though many who believe are killed, see Revelation 13, 7 and 15, 
Not all believers are killed during the tribulation. Those who live through the tribulation go into the kingdom in natural bodies. In addition, some people accept the Lord when he returns at the end of the tribulation. See Zechariah 12.10 from the Jews, they turn to the one whom they have pierced and they mourn for him as they mourn for an only son. That was my comment. Back to Feinberg's quote. Many of these people do not die at that point, and there is no evidence that they are given glorified body when they receive Christ. In other words, what Feinberg's saying is that scripture says they turn to Christ, they repent, but they are post-rapture, and thus they there's no indication that they would receive the glorified bodies. Thus, for a pre-trib position... This is Feinberg again. There are seven years to get people saved prior to the kingdom, and some of those can go into the kingdom in natural bodies. If anyone who goes at the rapture, if, sorry, if everyone who goes at the rapture is glorified, and if the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation, who is left to enter the kingdom in natural bodies? All believers who have been raptured and glorified by that time. Sorry, all believers will have been raptured and glorified by that time. In other words, what Feinberg is saying, is that pre-tribulationalism gives you seven years to have people stack up uh, to enter the kingdom in natural bodies in order that there would be children and giving birth, etc. But if you're a post-tribulationalist, you have a problem with the timing because if the second coming and rapture are the same, then there's essentially nobody who would be not glorified, nobody who would have a natural body to enter the kingdom. Now, there is one scholar, Robert Gundry, who uh, in the question, the, the, the individual who wished to have this episode on the rapture actually wanted me to deal with some of his views. And so I wanted to include some of Robert Gundry's responses to this at this point, because I think it's helpful. He basically gives four possible responses to this as a post-tribulationalist. And the first argument that he gives is that maybe the 144,000 in Revelation are those who go into the kingdom with natural bodies. So in other words, maybe the whole church is raptured, all believers are raptured, but there's this special group, the 144,000 that go into the uh, kingdom in natural bodies. Now, the problem with that view would be Revelation 14.4, which talks about the 144,000 being all men and all celibate. So that's a problem if you're uh, looking to co-populate and have children being born if you're celibate and if you're all men, there's no women. And so, yeah, that's a problem. So that one's not going to work. Now, another possible solution that he gives, which is origin- which is perhaps more attractive. I mean, I, I used to be more attracted to this option, but I'll tell you why it doesn't really attract me anymore. What he argues is that perhaps there will be non-believers who go into the kingdom. And I used to be okay with that, uh, because in Zechariah 14, 16, I'll read it for you here. Zechariah 14, 16, this is the ESV, says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king and the Lord of hosts to keep the Feast of the Booths. So what that seems to indicate is that there will be some survivors from the nations who are able to go up to Jerusalem. So couldn't those be unbelievers? And I would say no. And the reason why I don't think that that would be possible to include unbelievers in that is because of the message of the New Testament. So John the Baptist and Jesus both in 
are very clear that repentance is necessary uh, for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Additionally, you have Jesus's clear teaching in the Sermon on the Mount uh, that righteous living is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. For example, in Matthew 5, 20, you have, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, what Jesus seems to be saying very clearly is that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must have righteousness, which surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And in teaching through Matthew, I, I like to point out that Matthew uses righteous language not in the justification sense, but in the sense that you need to have right living. So in other words, this this is the, the fruits by which you are known. Uh, this kind of righteousness, this righteous action following Christ must be a part of your life if you're going to enter the kingdom. To put it in other words, in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. So in other words, the requirement to enter the kingdom of heaven would be that you do the will of the father. So putting those theological understandings of the kingdom of heaven together, we would seem to be required to say that character is essential to enter the kingdom. So being an unbeliever or a rebel entering the kingdom would seem to be not possible. So I just take Zechariah 14, 16, not as saying rebels, but of saying all those of the nations. Uh, and the assumption would be those who have repented and identified with the Messiah at that point. So that's how I would understand that. And it doesn't, uh, I don't think that there will be any rebels or non-believers that come into the kingdom. The third option that Gundry gives would be that Jews who are saved at the second advent could pass into the kingdom with natural bodies. And of course, there the reference is Zechariah 12.10, where the Jews look on him whom they have pierced and they mourn for him as they mourn for an only child. Now, the problem with this is that if you look at how Gundry paints his theology. He believes Zechariah 12.10, the turning of the Jews to the Messiah, is equivalent with Matthew 24.30. So it refers to the same event. And so Matthew 24.30 says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Notice that reference to Zechariah 12 there, will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then in verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud call. He will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, Gundry believes that since his second coming and his rapture are the same, that Matthew 24, 31, the gathering of the elect by the angels is a reference to the rapture. So if that's the case, then you have Zechariah 14 or sorry, Zechariah 12 taking place right before the rapture and then the rapture taking place then. So what that would seem to indicate is that the Jews of Zechariah 12.10 would actually be gathered in in Matthew 24.31 and gathered up. And so there'd be nobody left to participate. So in other words, that solution doesn't really work uh, even for Gundry's own position. The fourth uh, possible solution that Gundry gives as a post-tribulationalist would be that Daniel 12, 11 through 12, gives a 75-day gap between the tribulation and the kingdom institution. 
So what Gundry says is that it's possible that there are some rebels who turn to God in that 75 days and then they would go into the kingdom. Now, I think that's possible, but it's completely conjecture. There's nothing that would that would have us uh, believe that from the text. There's no explicit statement about that. And it seems to be special pleading as far as trying to get special circumstances for that. If there's a, a better solution to understanding how that works, I think it would be better to take that solution and allow that to work itself out, which of course I would argue pre-tribulationalism gives a, gives a fine solution to the to the idea that there's going to be natural bodies in the kingdom and it it allows for not only does it not contradict exegetical evidence but it also allows just for a natural piecing together of those texts so the idea of non-glorified saints entering the millennial kingdom i think pre-tribulationalism has the best solution to that of course that does work with mid-tribulationalism as well because they do have a three and a half year window for other saints to come. But there's another issue which really is a problem for both the mid-trib and post-trib position. And that's the idea that God promises the church deliverance from divine wrath. And so I don't want to get too far into uh, all this. I've already gone a little longer than I normally do, but just for sake of completeness, I'll try to finish this up. So God promises the divine deliverance um, from wrath, and we see this in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, and Revelation 3.10. God makes a special promise to the church that it will be delivered from this tribulational wrath of God. So in 1 Thessalonians 1, the Thessalonians are waiting for the Son of Heaven, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath which is to come. So how do we know this refers to the tribulation? Well, First and Second Thessalonians deals with the day of Lord and the judgment of God, which precedes the coming of Christ. That's very clear. Also, the text states that it's a future wrath, something that's coming. A reasonable expectation would be this divine judgment here in this period. And also, Lastly, this wrath is one that can be rescued from by Christ returning. Therefore, that makes sense that the wrath referred to would be the wrath of the tribulation period and not God's eternal wrath in general. In other words, uh, if Jesus coming back is what rescues you from the wrath, it's not God's eternal judgment since that would be that would be dependent on your relationship to Christ, not on Christ's proximity to where you are, if that makes sense. Likewise, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, we see that God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus. So this wrath referred to here, in context, Paul is talking about in verses 1 through 8 of 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord. So obviously the day of the Lord is a very specific time period. And that wrath corresponds to the day of the Lord. Plus, given the context of the book, this would make most sense to refer to the same wrath as is found in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. So there in the book of Thessalonians, you have a reference to the wrath and the expectation of Jesus to save believers from that coming wrath. Also, the whole seven-year tribulation period is described as God's divine wrath. And so if... If you think about what God has promised as far as protection, just thinking about this logically now, 
the church would have to be protected that whole seven years. And this is where I think the mid-tribulational period or the mid-tribulational position and the post-tribulational position uh, have, have a very difficult issue is that a lot of times they'll have to argue that this saving from, from the wrath of God is metaphorical. Um, it could be uh, physical in the sense that in Revelation, the plagues are happening to the whole world, but Israel is, is uh, or the church, I should say, since we're just speaking about the church, the church is isolated in some sense and, and under divine protection. But the problem is the description in Revelation of the divine outpouring of the wrath is indiscriminate, it seems. And it, there, again, it's kind of filling in the white spaces if you're saying that the church in the which isn't even mentioned in Revelation 4 through 18, the church gets a special protection when that's not stated at all in the text. So you're trying to put something there that's that's not really evident in one way or another. Another problem, and this is, I'll just mention briefly, with the mid-trib position specifically, is that a lot of mid-tribbers will argue that the church is raptured in the middle of the tribulation because that's when the wrath of God comes. However, in Revelation 6, uh, in Revelation 6, we're told specifically that the, the, the seals uh, before the midpoint of the tribulation uh, are also God's wrath coming upon the, the earth. So in order to make that distinction, uh, it's, it's not really a textual distinction because the wrath of God is said to be being poured out pre-mid-tribulation as well. And so that, uh, in other words, why would there be, what's the point of being raptured mid-tribulation if the wrath of God is already being poured out? Uh, then the church hasn't really been spared from the wrath of God. And I think one of the best arguments for the rapture as well is found in actually Revelation 3.10 in the instruction of the Church of Philadelphia, God says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So there, believers are promised deliverance from the divine wrath, but not only are they promised deliverance, but it's also stated that this is coming upon all those who dwell on the earth. So it's not going to be, uh, in other words, you're being removed because this coming judgment will be on everyone who dwells on the earth. So I think Revelation 3.10, it's not an exhaustive, ex, you know, the best passage on the rapture ever or anything like that. But I think it does give indication that God does have a special plan for the church, which includes keeping the church out of this time period of testing. Now, obviously, if you know your New Testament, you know the church is not... Uh, spared trial and tribulation in this life. However, this specific time period, this hour, as it's called in Revelation 3.10, the church will be spared from. Now, as we think about this, why would the church be spared from it? Well, I think the nature and the purpose of the tribulation give us indication of why that would be the case. So first of all, the tribulation actually centers on Israel. So if you're a good dispensationalist, you understand that the church in Israel have different uh, purposes. Daniel 9, 24 through 27 is very clear that the prophecy of the 70 weeks is centered around Israel. It deals with Israel. Jeremiah 30, 
verse 7, which refers to the tribulation period, is known as a time of Jacob's distress. Now, obviously, when we think about what the purpose of the tribulation is, we understand that according to Deuteronomy 4, 29, 30, Jeremiah 30, Zechariah 12, this tribulation is a time which prepares Israel for their restoration and conversion. Zechariah 12 is really important with regard to that as they turn to the one whom they have pierced and they mourn as, as one mourns for his only son. The other purpose as well, though, is a judgment on an unbelieving world. So you have the preparation of Israel for a repentance and embracing of their Messiah, but you also have judgment on an unbelieving world. Cross-reference with what we talked about in Revelation 3.10, where the church is said to be removed from that hour of testing, which is going to come upon the whole world. So the tribulation itself deals with Israel and the world, but there's not really a place for the church in that framework if we hold to a distinction between Israel and the church. Also, if you think about the nature of the church itself, uh, cross-reference thinking about uh, Ephesians and how Ephesians portrays the purpose of the church, we understand that the church has this intermediary role, which is kind of a placeholder for the nation of Israel, which will eventually return. But in addition to that, we understand, given the Jewish nature of the tribulation and and the unbelieving world, uh, the church is the deliverance of the church, which is promised in 1 Thessalonians and Revelation 3, it makes sense given given the fact that the church is, and you always want to be careful using this kind of terminology, I guess, but given the fact that the church really uh, has this intermediary role in the plan of God, and I'm not saying that's not significant, not important, that's not what I'm saying, but just as far as revelation and how that's explained in the New Testament, obviously the church comes on as a mystery. I mean, cross-reference Ephesians 3. But given that fact, it would not be surprising then that the Lord promises that the church is going to be removed and preserved from that tribulational, uh, that tribulational difficulty and trouble. So I think... I mean, I have to wrap this up. There's more I could say about this. I mean, a lot of people talk about the imminence of Christ's coming and how that's important to the rapture. I'm not convinced that's super essential. I know it is important, and there are a lot of things we could say about that. John Feinberg also wrote an article uh, arguing for pre-tribulationalism, and he makes a big point about how the marriage supper of the Lamb and the Bema seat judgment only makes sense from a pre-tribulational position. Uh, feel free to look up his article. It's, it's really well done. Uh, and I, we could talk more about that, but I think, I think we've covered, we've covered enough to hopefully be helpful or at least giving the, the broad survey of why pre-tribulationalism, I think, makes the most sense in fitting together a lot of this theology. And it's complicated at times because we want to be exact. And of course, the details are where, where it's all about. It's, it would be one solution to just kind of sweep everything under the rug and say, well, you know, even though the passages don't exactly agree, we'll just say that they agree and we'll figure it out later or something like that. We could do something like that, but, but the, the issue is that we want to be as exact as possible and as faithful as possible in interpreting each passage and understanding it as best as we can. Now, some people think that the rapture is a silly study, not worth the time of day. But I think we need to understand that all scripture is profitable. 
all doctrine is profitable. It's worth thinking about, if only for the fact that it concerns God's plan for his people, it's worth thinking about. And so I think it's worth our time to go through these, think, think through the ramifications of these different views. And I think when we, when we do this, we also understand that this teaching actually has a direct, uh, a direct impact on the believer's expectation of Christ's coming back and thus motivating him to live a godly life. In other words, are we looking for Jesus to come back every single day, or are we waiting to see some signs that would indicate he's going to come back in seven years? I think that's an important issue because that is definitely motivating uh, as well to understand that Christ could come back any day and we would we would be accountable to him for how we've been living our lives. So anyway, I know this has been, uh, even though it's a bit of a longer episode, it is really a brief overview, but I hope it's been helpful. And I'm sure there may be some specific follow-up questions on the issues. So I welcome those. If you want to email me, you can email me at peter at petergaiman.com. You can always visit the website for the contact form there. Or if you want more information on the seminary, visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, we'll see you later.